So a guy is standing on the corner of the street smoking one cigarette after another. A lady walking by notices him and says, Hey, don't you know those things can kill you? I mean, didn't you see the giant warning on the box? Guy replies, That's okay. Puffing casually, I'm a computer programmer. So what's that got to do with anything? We don't care about warnings. We only care about errors. Uh, (laughs) So true. (laughs) I was wondering where you were going with that. You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 53. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, example discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. Or head to www.cuttingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, welcome. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. All right. And uh, starting us off with a little news here, we got some uh, fantastic reviews. Uh, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to go ahead with uh, iTunes. So big thank you to Deverell, Dar Chickay, Cody Monreal, Lou Ashby, and Angelos M. And you're you going to do these, Ella? I can, I think. Uh, Tim writes code, Rainmaker52, I4 Tallat? That's probably wrong. Uh, Tony Tone Tone. <laughs> the, <laughs> why are you well, laughing? Yeah, I, like I, I mispronounced one of those. Tony Tony Tony. I just should be. That's, yeah, it, Tony Tony Tony. Yeah, but, man, that's back in the day. That was You don't remember them? Wait, no. I Tony Tony right. Tony has done it again. But yeah, you did say it right. Yeah. I was wrong. It's Tony Tone Tone. Tony Tone Tone. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, we all wanted ah, it to be something I something read else. one correct. <laughs> Take uh, that, Rainmaker52, with your easy name. <laughs> uh, Rainmaker's like, what are you to bring me into this? Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, thank, thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate it. And you can find the full show notes for this episode at www.codingbox.net slash episode 53. And uh, speaking of threes, we wanted to give a big thank you to everyone who voted for us in the 2016 Podcast Awards. Uh, I think we ended up in third place in a category. I'm not really sure. They don't they don't announce uh, the you know the losers, I guess. Uh, but I, I feel <laughs> wow. like a winner. So what, what are you saying about this, man? That's we were the best of the worst. <laughs> uh, but, hey. uh, yeah, we really appreciate it, and uh, it was really cool. And I think it, that a lot of people were exposed to the name. Um, there were a couple of emails that went out as things got tighter and tighter. The race got uh, closer to finishing, so um, I think you guys helped us uh, out a lot, and we really appreciate it. Yep, thank you. And and Joe did something pretty crazy here. What was this? Yep, and actually, uh, I can't really take the credit for this. Um, this kind of grew out of uh, hashtag I made something the uh, channel and uh, our Slack, um, and uh, we created a Reddit. So if you go to www.reddit.com slash r slash coding blocks uh, we have a reddit where you can submit links to stuff that you made or maybe um, articles that you think are you know people might be interested in and uh, ideally it's going to be a little friendlier community than uh, slash r um, slash programming it's going to be a lot smaller and we're still figuring out <laughs> hey what, what, what are you uh, trying to say <laughs> is our programming uh, not our friendly programming, it's, it's, it's a kind of a cesspool uh, have you heard uh, some of the conversations of really great articles <laughs> it's brutal yeah and uh, we got some great moderators helping us out uh, and including um, Zach Browdy he's one of the moderators uh, also known as Reactionary we mentioned him a few times and um, we actually just wrote a little co- uh, community spotlight the first of a series that we're starting here uh, just saying thank you and kind of highlighting the awesome work that he's doing to um, teach other people how to code specifically React 
Yep. Awesome stuff. And, as always, if you would like some stickers, do send us a self-addressed stamped envelope. You can go to www.cuttingblocks.net slash swag, and we have stickers and some other things there that are really cool. So if you're interested in getting stickers, send us that. If you don't have the address, definitely just send us a direct message on Twitter, hit us up on Slack, email us, whatever, and we'll get those out to you. And uh, actually, can someone describe what a, a self-addressed stamp envelope is? That's kind of a common term here in America, but we've gotten some feedback from international um, people not knowing what that is. Oh, interesting. Okay, so yeah, if you mail us your own envelope, so basically take an envelope, address it to yourself, stuff it in another envelope wait, that you'll send to us. Wait, you forgot to put whatever necessary postage. Oh, yeah, you want to put your postage on there. Um Stuff it into the envelope that you send to us, and then we take that envelope out of the one you sent us, cram our stickers in there that you'll love, and we'll make your computers faster, and we send it back to you. So, yeah, I think I explained that all right. It's like a very small nesting doll of envelopes. Yeah. <laughs> the Russian doll envelope thing? Yeah. Yes, there we go. All right. And and we have our winner for Clean Code for episode 51, and that is Philip Thompson. So we'll be reaching out to you to try and get some information so that we can send you your very own copy of Clean Code. So congratulations. All right. Well, let's get into, you know, well, you know what we were going to, so tonight's topic is chapter eight, boundaries. But there was a, one thing I wanted to call out that was from the previous episode. We had talked about, um, there was the, this conversation about re- return codes versus exceptions. And we had questioned, like, hey, what about in a command line application, you know, where uh, maybe the calling application is expecting a one or zero, like, what then, right? So I actually got kind of curious and, and wanted to see what happened. So turns out uh, both can be returned in mm. that scenario. So you could have the exception thrown, and um, at least in uh, a .NET world, uh, it would return back an error code of 255, I thought that was pretty neat. Awesome. Yeah, that's nice. Well, thanks for doing that. I totally forgot about it after the yeah. episode. Uh, excellent. So let's go ahead and get rolling on this one, Boundaries. Yep, and uh, this chapter was actually written by James Grenning, um, who I did a little oh. bit of Googling. Uh, he's uh, done a couple of things. He's done a lot of things. Um, but notably, he's written a book on test-driven development for embedded C. So you know that he is a badass. Hmm. You, you, yep. you made it look like you're. Oh, I forgot. I did forget. I wanted to mention one other thing about that that uh, that topic was that in the case of the exception on Windows, for example, it would bring up a an error dialog saying like, "Oh, hey, this application has crashed. Do you want to debug it or cancel it?" Like you ever seen one of those annoying things? Yeah. Right. That was in the case of the exception being thrown, but it also depended on how you called that, though. Huh. Um, hmm. So, yeah, whatever. Let's move on. Boundaries. Cool. Um, yeah, uh, so chapter written by James Grading. And when we talk about boundaries here, uh, in the book, they focus really on third-party and open-source packages. And uh, and also, um, they mention later in the chapter, code that doesn't actually exist yet. So things that you think you're going to be working with that you want to kind of abstract. But I did think it was really interesting that they didn't mention services, which is now kind of my primary thought when I start thinking about boundaries and third parties. You know, I think about things like, I don't know, Splunk or... Um, you know, other services like payment gateways or whatever that I interact with over web services. And I think of those as being uh, boundaries, 
but they're not so much third-party libraries anymore. That's a that's actually a really good point, and I think what we're going to talk about in here would greatly apply to those as well, uh, and and you'll find out why when we get into this a little bit. Yep, and this chapter basically just focuses on practices and techniques to keep those boundaries clean. And right away, like there was a there was an awesome quote that I loved in this one because it's so true, is that we seldom control all the software in our systems. And I think really it should be like, we never control all of the software in our systems because really I think in the times that we have controlled all of the software in our systems, I mean like, what did you really write there? Yeah. buzz. Right. Did you, did you really? I mean, honestly, because you know, I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not taking it, trying to take it to a stream, but I kind of felt like part of this kind of took it to a stream and extreme in this chapter because he's talking about some like built-in libraries of oh, the language, right? Like the map. So in your FizzBuzz example, I'm assuming you might have called a some kind of console.write line or printf or whatever. So therefore, yeah, you use something that somebody else wrote, buddy. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that part about the uh, the built-in that, that he talked about working around, which was which was interesting. And I know situations where you've actually done something similar. Um well, I thought it was so uh, coincidental that in the last episode, like I completely forgot. I, I'd actually already read this chapter before, but it had been a while. And so when we were talking last time and I made the, you know, kind of extreme case about like, well, hey, would you wrap system, for example, like referring to built in yep. uh, uh, namespaces or, or types. And then when I went back and reread this chapter and he was calling out something that was built into the framework. Uh, of his you know, particular language of choice, I was like, "Oh wow, I'm not the only one that went kind of extreme on that." Uh, yeah, you know, he totally did. So there's a, there's a quote that we have here. There's a natural tension between the provider of an interface and the user of an interface. And yeah, I really like this quote. Yeah, uh, I'm the one that that's in there. It's it's true, right? I mean, you. Uh, I don't know. You always feel like when you're working with something that's not yours that you're you're somewhat wary of it. You, you, I don't know. There there is a tension there. Well, um, I mean, specifically what he was talking about in this chapter, though, or in this part of the book, was talking about like how the provider wants it to do one thing, wants to solve one problem for as many cases as he can, but yet we as the user we have our very special need and that's the one thing that we want it to excel at. And we don't care about all that other stuff. We just care about ourselves because we're greedy. Oh, wait, yeah. he probably, that last part, I may have, <laughs> I may have ad-libbed on that. Well, and I know when I'm writing code, uh, I try to write things in a way so that it's flexible for the things that I think are most likely to change. Cause as we all know, requirements always change um, all the time immediately. And that's why, uh, you know, it's good for us job security, but, um, it's definitely uh, something to watch out for. And so it's something I think of was like when I make something that's really more general and um, this carries over, unfortunately, a lot of times into the UI, I'm thinking more about my side of things and, and not about the experience that the user is dealing with. But, you, you know, you said some, you said a word or phrase there, though, that kind of hit a nerve. Because you said you threw in job security as part of your description there. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever noticed though that when, at least in real world situations, at least that I've had, whenever job security is used as a reference to some piece of code, it's never the 
pretty piece of code. No, it's so it's always the code that's like, here's this 20,000 line file that nobody ever wants to have to edit. And anytime they ever have to fix or add or, or do anything to it, it's just a week long endeavor to add five lines or to figure out where to put like it's it's the worst part of the application at all so i don't want if that's what job security is i don't want it right i I think we've actually talked about that before in the past and that's not something you should strive to be there right like you should write code because it's almost like as you do things better and better and better, people will appreciate that. And it makes them want you to be there more, right? As opposed to being the only guy who understands that, that one file. And I know people joke about it, but there is something to be said for being that guy that helps build those standards or builds that clean code so that other people that come behind can get things done quicker. So I don't even know if it's that so much as it's just you'll spend all of your time in that file because it's such a, it. it's so monstrous that yeah, you'll own it. You'll have job security because it takes forever to get do anything in it. Yeah. So so well, on this thing with the uh, the broad capability or the applicability and the specific need, this is actually where they started talking about wrapping the built in um, feature, which was a, a hash map in Java, which right? Just map, which was a map in Java. And what they said is it. When you look at a map, it has a ton of features, right? Like you can add to it, you can clear it, you can you can up, you can do all kinds of things with it, right? And it's because people who use maps might need to use them for various different things. But if you have a very specific need and you don't want anybody to be able to modify that collection, then using the map may not make sense. And so it makes sense for you to wrap that map and kind of hide it through implementation purposes so that when you give that that object to somebody, that collection of of whatever it is that you were putting in that map, they can't clear it, they can't edit it, they can't delete from it, they can't add to it, right? So that's where they were talking about wrapping it, and it's about your usage of it. So it was interesting, and I know you've done this in the past with like a cache type thing, where where you'd wrap a class and the internal implementation of yours did something slightly different, right? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's actually... Interesting that you brought that example up because I kind of, as I was rereading this section, I did kind of um, think about that one in the back of my mind as I was as I was reading it, and I don't really think that it would kind of apply because in my case, I was providing a class that internally I had a dictionary that I was using, but I was also um, the and the dictionary was never being exposed. But externally, I was providing a dictionary interface. So mm. I was still providing all the same functionality of a dictionary. Okay. okay. And so I feel like that's where it kind of broke what um, uh, James was saying here in that, you know, maybe um, maybe you don't want to implement delete or clear kind of functionality, right? right? Uh, and, and if you're just going to do a one-for-one of the interface, then, you know, I feel like that didn't apply. So... Um, it was. It is interesting that you thought of that same example, though. Yeah, and they recommend um, basically avoiding passing around that uh, third party, which we talked about a little bit in the last episode with the example of log for net. Like, how often are you going to swap log for net out? And so, I, I do think you got to take this with a programmatic grain of salt. You know, there's um, third party libraries that are more important to wrap things that are more likely to change, or things that are uh, more likely to be finicky or need flexibility but if it's something that really common and really basic then uh you can maybe be a little lax with that well 
so there's a couple points here that that I found in this that was interesting. One is that he was talking about this whole thing about wrapping map, which one okay. So going back to the previous statement about like my extreme take on like, hey, well, what if we were a wrap system, right? Or you know, console or something, something basic like that. Um, and his reason for it was that from one version of Java to the next version of Java, once they introduced generics, then, uh, you know, that's when, that's when it hit the fan. Right. Right. And, uh, and had they wrapped map, then they wouldn't have been in painful situations and that the code bases that didn't wrap it, um, were, were, didn't, get updated as quickly to support generics as the ones that had protected themselves against exposing implementation details like that. So then it kind of made me think like, okay, well that's interesting. Is that because is this a, cause there's some of these chapters where we've talked about um, things that were like, well that's because, okay, like checked exceptions, for example, we talked about checked exceptions in the last episode and we're like, well, okay, that's because that's a Java thing that it was, like, you know, other languages don't really have that. It's not really a problem in other languages. And it kind of made me think like, huh, what's another example of something that was kind of a, a core uh, type in a, in a framework or language that then changed from one version into the next? And I, I don't know if you guys have one off the top of your head, but I, I couldn't think of one right away. Nope. But uh, in this example, um, I, I think it's important to point out that they weren't using all the functionality of this map. They were only doing one thing with it. Right. So it's a really contrived example where they're all they were ever doing is getting an item out of it. And so they were able to wrap that functionality because it didn't matter that it was a map or a hash. It, all that mattered is that they could get an item. Correct. Yeah. In that example. Now going back though, it, it, I, I kind of take a little bit of issue with wrapping so, for what their purpose was of getting just that one thing out. Sure. Wrap it. That makes sense. But the whole idea of does it though? Well, it, it kind of does. If I mean, you're because trying if to we're taking it. this to an extreme, then we're basically saying that your public API should never expose a type that isn't yours. No, right? You, you always that- have, no, no. I think it has to do with the use case, right? So, if you know that you only want people to ever use this product and or this this uh, object and read from it then totally build your own type to make sure that that only happens. And if map happens to be the easiest way to get data in there, then that makes sense, right? Like I can get behind that. I, I, I can see the value in it. What I don't like though is where they said, well, if you just wrap map in the past, then you would have been set up for using generics in the future. Come on, man. Like that's, I, I don't feel like that's a fair statement because who's going to know that all of a sudden your types are going to, they're going to introduce this thing called generics, right? Like, I, I don't feel like that's a good argument for it because the, the only thing I will say is, and we used to see it in .NET, what, .NET 2.0, I believe, um, before that, from, before the next version of .NET, there were no generics, right? So you would constantly see these casting of of data types. You know that you put something into some into a particular object, and that hasn't you, gone away, by the way. And you'd always have to cast it coming out, right? Well, generics gets kind of solves that problem, well, which is what they're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it ha- that hasn't actually gone. That'll never go away. It depends on like what part of the framework you're using, right? But but I guess what I'm saying is you could have totally done the same thing and made the same argument in .NET. But I feel like 
like wrapping some sort of system thing saying, well, because I'm having to cast all the time, you know, I have this future vision that somebody's going to add some generics. Like, I, I feel like that was a bad argument. But yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be just language constructs, right? This get by ID method could have gone out and fetched from a database. It could have fetched from a cache. It could have been a map. It could have been a hash map. You know, so th- there's other reasons there. This is definitely a contrived example. And in the example, um, map has 21 functions associated with the object. And all we ever want to do is just have something that, we're, that we can retrieve our item from. Right. So, you know, it's, it's nice. It's clean. Would I do it in the real world? Probably not. It would depend. It, it, I think, I think, wouldn't that be true? Like probably not if you knew it was only you consuming that thing, but if it was something you're going to expose the other, other programming departments or other users of your API, you probably would, right? Because you'd want to guarantee that they weren't going to cause some problem that you weren't going to be able to anticipate. I, I guess where I was going with this though, especially when I brought back up the checked exceptions as an example was this one it felt more like a case of trust. Like there was a lack of trust because of this bat, this prior experience in the language that the framework authors or language authors mm. did to their community. Right. And so because there was this lack of trust, then the community felt like, okay, well we have to build up walls around them because we can't trust them to, protect us and keep it easy for future upgrades. Right. And as a result, like I, I maybe, I, maybe that's not a fair analogy, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? I Does do. that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I don't think, I don't think wrapping system things for that reason makes much sense, but like the map thing I get. Um, so I, I don't know. Well, only if you're reducing functionality, yes. I get it in that yes. case. But, but again, there's a part of this, context that was about like you know protecting it for future upgradability which is the part where it's yeah. kind of take an issue with it like yeah okay then you go to the extreme that i mentioned where you like you never return back any uh built-in type now i will give you something interesting along these lines before we move on though that's sort of what they've probably done with uh the windows subsystem for linux right I mean, really, more than likely, they're wrapping their subsystem calls. It, so Stuff that, you would never change, right? Right. Well, I'm, right. I'm assuming that that's just a facade it around is. It is. Around uh, it. I'm sure it is. But, I mean, it is interesting when you talk about, like, you'd probably never wrap it. That, I guarantee you that's, that's mostly what they are doing to a certain degree, right? Which, mm, which no. a lot of... You don't think? No, I, I mean, I think that's like different things because they're translating, and this is why I say it's a facade pattern because they're translating a call from like like a Linux call might have, let's say to to read a file from the disk, then a Linux API call might take a certain format. Well, that format might be different to make that same operation might have a different format in the Windows call. So there's this facade in between that. Or an adapter that translates the, adapter, the yeah. uh, Linux API call into the format that the Windows API call takes, and then returns it back in the appropriate format. So I'm not, I'm not assuming that that's this. I'm not interpreting that as the same case as like wrapping map okay. to be some type that only returns one method, right? right? Um, but then there was also this other thing too, and that I kind of did a bad job on of explaining myself in the last one where 
even if you wrap your th- these third-party libraries, right, you, you don't get away from DLL hell, right? That still exists because your project still carries that other DLL with it, right? So, so obviously, since we're talking DLLs, we're not talking about Java. But, you know, if we're talking about uh, you bring in log for net, right? So you have some kind of a package um, that, that you've written as a wrapper around log for net. So last time we were calling this, calling this the coding box co- uh, logging library. Right. CBLL for short. Um, so, so the coding blocks logging library is wrapping log for net. And let's say it's log, it's wrapping log for net version eight. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you put that thing out there as a NuGet package and it's version one of the coding box logging library. And you could have a solution right now. I'm not saying this would be an ideal world, but you could have a solution where different versions of that might have or different projects within the solution could use different um, versions of that NuGet package. And then you still have multiple, like when you would go to build one final project. That could happen, but that's less likely. I think that's the whole point of wrapping a third party library, like a logger, right? You know that for the most part, if we're talking about something like a logging library, those are fairly standardized nowadays. So if you write your, but if you write your wrapper, let's say that you're going to have, you're going to have a logger dot warn, a logger dot error and a logger dot info, right? Chances of you really making that many changes to your interface are pretty slim over time. Whereas that log for net library is being updated constantly, whether it's for performance purposes or yeah, your DLL isn't going to go isn't going might not be updated. But what I'm saying is that like your DLL is going to bring with it unless you do something like where you compile it to where that other binary is included in is like literally written into your binary, right? So so it's a an internal reference to it, but. You know, nine times out of ten, it's not what you do. You would have both DLLs, your library referencing the other library, right? And so you're still going to. So when it comes, if you had multiple projects that all reference your library, but yours is and it changing, comes though. into build one final project, then there's going to be a consistency. Like you're going to have two file names, two DLL file names that are the same DLL name but different versions, and so that's where the uh, C sharp compiler. Uh, is going to get into a linking problem at the end because it's going to be like, well, hey, you got these conflicting versions. Unless now, log for net's a special case because there are things that you can do within the law in the .NET, um, like in your web config or your um, app config, where you can say like, hey, if you see this version of the live of a DLL, anything in this version range treat as acceptable in this, right? What were you going to say, Joe? Uh, I was just going to say that um, we're getting kind of into implementation details here, but (laughs) you're absolutely right. We do bring along the third-party dependencies, but I do like that it's hidden from our code. So the things that I'm typing are largely ignorant of those things. So I still think it's cleaner, but, you know, it's something to consider. Yes. So, so So great. So the only takeaway that I was trying to make last time was that it doesn't solve the DLL hell. And that, that's the real thing that I was getting at. That yeah. doesn't go away. It does make it cleaner. Hence the title, Clean Code. I don't yeah. know if you caught uh, that reference. Cleaner. 
And speaking of cleaner, uh, sort of, um, one thing that I thought was really interesting uh, is the next section talking about exploring and learning boundaries. And the reason I thought it was so interesting is because a lot of times when we talk about unit testing, we kind of give a, a few things um, kind of free passes, uh, license to, to not be tested. One of those things that I've always said is exploratory code. It's hard to test exploratory code because you don't know what you're doing yet. You don't know what the code does yet. And so it's kind of something where tests aren't common. And this this section... It's kind of saying the opposite. So it's saying, why don't you do your exploration and test? And that way, you've got a, a nice reference example of how to do it. And also, you've got a repeatable test that you can use for helping you migrate and whatnot. And so, I thought this was a really interesting section, my favorite part, actually. I love the idea. But I can say that I don't think I've done that, though. <laughs> I no, have. I, I mean, I've done that for things that weren't exploring a third party, like where I'm exploring my own ideas, like, well, hey, what if, does this work? What if I made it do this? Does it, did that still work? But never for a third party. So I need to start. You know, the, the thing that caught me on this is it actually seems like it's more important to do it for a third party than it would be your own code, right? Yeah. Because you don't, you don't know what their implementation is. And if they do upgrade right. and, and you have to upgrade your dependency, all of a sudden, if you don't have tests around it, you don't know if it's still operating the same that you expected it to before the upgrade. So I thought this was an absolutely fantastic point that I'd never even really thought about. Yeah, and that's it's funny. Like I've even wrote like I've written um, like program.cs, like started up a new project just to you know see how something works and kind of figure it out before I go drop it in my code. And now I'm thinking out why didn't I make that instantly repeatable? Oops. I'm so glad I'm not the only one that's done that. <laughs> yeah, it, it was uh, the takeaway from this one was really good. And the other thing they said, too, that I really liked was the whole idea that when you integrate with a third party, it's a bunch of unknown, right? Like it, you, it, it really is exploratory programming. And the thing is, if you don't put tests around it so you don't know what your expectations are, when it gets out into the field, you end up spending tons of time debugging stuff that you don't even really have any idea how it works, right? And and you've got no fallback. You've got nothing that says, this is what I thought would happen here and this is what actually happened. So it, it was it was huge even from a productivity point of view. And if you write your unit test names like I write my unit test names, you're definitely documenting your expectation of that API. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and stay tuned for the next episode, uh, that, or at least the next one in the Clean Code um, session we've been doing here because uh, it's all about unit testing, and I, I'm sure it's going to be a good one. Cool. Tease. Yep. And uh, <laughs> one thing I, I thought was interesting here, too, is um, they mentioned spending a day or two reading documentation, which I thought was kind of, it gave me a little chuckle because back in the day when I got like a new payment API or something like that, I, you know, that would happen. I would do a lot of reading and a lot of times it was like coding stuff out of tables from the PDF, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes you couldn't even copy paste in order to do that. And it's gotten so much easier. But just thinking about spending two days with so much stuff going on, especially in, in JavaScript world where you require a package, you just Google real quick, like, uh, you know, how do I talk to NoSQL? Okay, found the top package. Let's try it. You know, if you can't get that working in five minutes, you move to the next one. <laughs> That's you know, right. It's a different world. We're so spoiled. <laughs> yeah. It's so true, too, man. Like, if it's not, it's, we definitely want instant gratification. So if we don't immediately yep. see a result on that based off of that Stack Overflow answer, we're moving on to the next one. Right. There's got to be yeah, another like, good one. <laughs> like reading documentation, you mean the readme file? <laughs> readme.md? Um, you mean the Google results? Uh, yep. Stack Overflow. That's beautiful. 
It is ironic that our next topic here is is the part of the chapter that was talking about Log4J, because what they go through is the whole, okay, well, here it is. Let me plop it in. Oh, that should work, right? And it doesn't work. And then it's like, oh, well, it says you need this. Oh, let me plop that in. Uh, it still doesn't work. Now it's complaining about this. Dude, I've had the same exact experience with Log4Net every single time I have to do it from scratch. Because you look at it, you're like, oh, this looks simple. You throw it in there and nothing happens. You're like, yeah. what? What? Why? Why is it not working? Like, I've I've got the console appender in there. I know I'm doing this, and it shows in their document. And then, like an hour later, you finally have it working. And you're like, I should totally snapshot this and put it somewhere, but I'm not going to do it because I love this pain. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to do no, it no, totally. Well, your snapshot is the Git repo, and then the next time you need a new Git repo with Log4Net, you're just like, hey, what did my con my config look like last time? Oh yeah, copy and paste. But then you're like, it can't be that hard. I mean, it shows right here. Right. <laughs> I, will, I will say that config for Log4Net it oh. seems unnecessarily brutal to, for what, than what you might expect it should be. It, it's so Feature boring. parody with Java. That's, that's why I blame it on. <laughs> but uh, you know, if you set up a learning test and you had a nice, simple example there, and you know, some sort of test project that you could reference, and that would be the ultimate because you don't have to go searching around through Git history or anything. You've just got it. But, you know, going back to the the whole idea of, like, learning this library, um, you know, doing your experimenting tests and trying to figure out, like, what you want out of their API, there was this this really great uh, quote in here that was, learning the third-party code is hard. Integrating the third-party code is hard, too. Doing both at the same time is doubly hard. Yeah. It really is. And by hard, uh, we mean hard and also very error-prone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's the thing that's really bad. So going around this whole logging thing, we've been talking about creating, you know, creating our boundaries so that it's things that we've created that we know about. And, and the logging one, we brought it up in the last episode, you know, should you wrap your logging library? And we're talking about it again here with, you know, what we were just talking about. It was interesting that we're not the only ones that think about this. Um, Will was in Slack, and he's like, hey, have you ever seen the, uh, I can't remember the name of it, the simple logging facade for Java? Yeah. So there's actually, which is ironic, because you'd be introducing a third party to use but, your but facade. That's, and that's the point that I made to Will, was like, okay, well, fine, then you're still using a third party. Yeah. So now do you wrap that thing because you don't trust that? I mean, because right. that, that's the point of this chapter. It's still a third party dependency, so you can't period. Trust it. Yeah wrap the third party dependencies it, it was it was interesting though that this is such a big problem and and something that that you don't even realize is a problem until you get stuck in it right and as soon as you're stuck you're like oh man why didn't why didn't we do things differently but it is ironic that there's an entire library out there just as a facade for all the logging libraries out there for java so um uh, we'll include that in the show notes and it, it was interesting but it's been a while since I've looked at that. Uh, what was it again? I forgot. It was the simple logging library. Yeah, why is that not working? Simple for, log for J. Simple logging facade for J. But that was, um, I thought that one gave you the ability to swap them out without. Uh, like using Spring for dependency injection or something? Yeah, it gave you the ability. I thought it gave you the ability to swap out your logging. On the fly, yeah, it lets you kind of configure it if I remember correctly, but I don't, I don't really know a whole lot about it, so uh, I'm yeah. kind of scared to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. 
So, uh, am I the beggar? I thought you were begging today. Oh, I can. Yeah, sure. All right, go ahead. So, dear listener, um, we would greatly, greatly appreciate uh, you taking that moment to leave us a review. And if you have already and you're thinking, man, I got to listen to this again, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, send us a, a self-addressed envelope and we'll send you a sticker or two to three to make it up to you. Um, but if you have it, we would greatly appreciate it. it. It really does put a smile on our face when we read those reviews and, uh, it, it really means a lot to us. So you can head to www.codingblocks.net slash review and find easy links to, uh, the major platforms to leave us a review there. And with that, it's time for my favorite por- portion of the show. Survey says. All right. <laughs> why, why is Joe's screen bouncing? He's, he's running down, man. It was action. Uh, <laughs> That's um, right. I got you. All right. So our last episode, the survey was, do you listen to anything while you code? So your choices were music, because I got to get my jam on, or podcast, because how else do you think I'm listening to this? Audiobooks, because the books are always better than the movie. TV, how else am I going to stay up to date on Westworld? Ugh. What? How can you watch Westworld and, and do anything except for just continue to exist? That show like, is That so show awesome. turns me into filthy sludge. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even want to be alive. <laughs> like, humans are wretched. Uh, show's amazing. Okay. Maybe... There should be another survey about how wretched are we? Um, <laughs> or, and lastly, back to the previous survey, the office background, because I'm actually paying attention to my cubicle neighbors and all of their gossip. So, let's see. Who went first last time? Let's go with Joe this time. I don't remember who went first, but we're going to go with Joe. So pick one of those, Joe. What do you think it is? Music, podcast, audiobooks, TV, or... Just the background noise going on around you. I'm going to say music because uh, there's a lot of chatter in our programming music channels and Slack, and I've never seen uh, you know or heard anyone really talk about the office drama going around them. Okay, so, what's your okay. percentage? That would be my second though. You, get, <laughs> you got a number you want to throw to that? <laughs> yeah, I think music has it with thirty point two percent. That is rather specific. Okay. Alan? It's music for sure, and it's going to be 30.21. For 2 1. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was no, well played, no, sir. No. Uh, it's, it's going to be somewhere <laughs> north of 60%, I say. Okay, so are we just, I'm just going to call it at 60, 60 then. 60, yeah. Okay, and remember, we're playing by Price's Right rules. Yes. So the answer is it's music. Bye. Um, yeah, you should have you should have stayed with your original answer there, 30. buddy. Thirty point two one. Come on, man. Fifty nine percent. Are you oh, kidding me, no. dude? Oh, so Joe wins it. That's so close. Well played, man. I'll take some solace. I was close. <laughs> <laughs> nope, we don't play by absolute. Uh, it's uh, prices right rules. Hey, you wait, went over. Wait, we actually had an awesome conversation in Slack, and. This was interesting for anybody listening. And this this was in .NET specifically, probably C-sharp. Don't know if it's for every language. But did you know that rounding up in .NET, 
if you're rounding to a whole number, it does it by odds and evens. Oh yeah, there's yeah. actually it's called a banker's rounding. Yeah, it's a financial thing. Yeah, None of, like this conversation went on forever, and they're like, "What is going on?" Like sometimes it's going up to this, and sometimes it's going down. Yeah, yeah and I forget what the case is. Like you would expect it, like if it was something point five, you would expect that it would round up to two, but yep. instead it round like if it was one point five and you round it, you would expect one point five to be rounding to two point oh, and instead it would round to one point oh. And that's because by default, it uses uh, banker's rounding. Because basically, if it does one way for odds and the other way for evens, it ends up canceling itself out so you don't really lose any money. So, so it, it's interesting. It's weird that the choice though was made to counter like what you would learn in math though, right? Because you're like, okay, yeah, okay, fine. It's going to counter. It's going to it's going to contradict one another. So then, why didn't you do it the way that we're taught in math? Yeah, it seems to me like the bankers is a very specific case, and if you are worried about those numbers matching up, you're probably much more aware of that problem. Whereas everyone else in the universe thinks round means round. Right? Yeah, it, it, that was a again join our Slack channel. We have awesome conversations like this all the time. Um, but yeah, I thought that was that was great considering that should have been rounded up to sixty. Yeah, and I should have won that. So no, yeah, he totally did. didn't. And, um, <laughs> Joe won that. And by the way, like, how many people do you think get the prices right reference though? Is that even a thing anymore? Like that that uh, you know? Now that Bob Barker's gone, do do, do we need to describe what that means? Because especially considering. I mean, we have a rather large international audience, and I don't know how popular The Price is Right is over there. Uh, well, Once you get on the other side of the pond. We can do this right. We'll find an excellent clip from The Price is Right on YouTube, <laughs> and it will be in the show notes here. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, That's by the way, by the way, we're doing video again, right? Are we? And we did video on the Crap, last man. one, and we I added didn't put it. put my face on. Well, <laughs> Outlaw has a microphone the size of his head in front of his head. Uh, we're going to get that out of there. Actually, I'm going to sneak in with a small mic next time. Um, but, yeah, so Smaller on me. episode 52, we actually have the YouTube video on that episode, and we'll have this video as well um, if you click the link there. So I just want to throw that out while I was thinking about it. All right, I'm so desperate let, to check out these show notes because I want to see these prices right highlights. <laughs> I guess we know who's editing this one. Oh man! Hey, it's your turn. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like, so, you're excited, but I think well, this is awkward. I'll find a YouTube clip. All right. <laughs> All righty. So let's get into our next survey. So when you are PC gaming, what is your preferred weapon of choice? Is it the Xbox controller, any version, PlayStation controller, Steam controller, anything made by Logitech, or just a plain old mouse and keyboard, WASD for life. We're not going to do Mac. Oh, you can't have WASD in there. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> WASD, WASD is the obvious answer. For, for hardcore mean, PC gamers, If it's totally. PC and keyboard, what are you going to do? Remap it to JKL? You could. Okay, so it, IJKL, well, so, I guess. I just want to make sure that we specify, like, for games that are, like, designed for controllers. Because, I mean, if you're playing anything else, you know, if you're playing Rocket League, you need a controller. And that's, that's what this question is designed for. But if you're playing, like, you know, Doom or Call of Duty or something, you're using a keyboard and mouse unless you hate yourself. Okay. I mean, why? There's console versions of those games where you could use an Xbox controller or a PlayStation controller. Somebody with a keyboard and a mouse will smoke you. Every single time playing a first person shooter. Okay, so we're saying that mouse and keyboard can't be a legitimate 
uh, option in this game. So, so we got to yeah, I got to reword speaking. the question then to say when you're PC gaming for a game that was really designed for a console <laughs> <laughs> and requires that you use a console controller, which is your preferred console? Why don't I just say when you're console gaming? Uh, why don't we just because say then you don't have a choice? Hey, when you're playing Rocket League, <laughs> your preferred go. controller. I, th- I think we've gotten to the meat of the, the question there. I don't know. There are a lot of games that I use a controller for, uh, surprisingly. Uh, this is why your stats are what they are. <laughs> uh, I you say this Dang. Is Shots fired. Oh, man. <laughs> I am terrible. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. He weeps silently. Uh, <laughs> uh, All right. The, that scar is going to take a while to heal. That will. All right. So what do we got next? All right, we're back to talking about tests. Um, so we're continuing on with the boundaries um, discussion. We talked about learning tests, and we didn't really talk about, or, or maybe we did, um, but talk about why they're better than free. Because uh, the idea there is that you're doing the work to dis- to discover this and debug and figure this third-party library out. So why not save what you did for future smoke tests and migrations? It's- it makes so much sense. Why, why yeah, it's kind of hard to argue against that one. Yeah, why don't we? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I'm telling you, like reading this chapter in that last chapter, I feel guilty about not like wrapping everything I've ever used that was even if it was a system related, you know, or framework related, language related uh, call. I felt like I should have wrapped it, and I was bad for not. Yep. Yep. And by having this battery test too, like say new, you end up upgrading Newton soft, which somehow happens all the time. Uh, if you're in .NET land then you'll know if something meaningful broke, um, which is pretty nice. And, uh, yeah, it just makes it easier to upgrade. So it's kind of takes some of that pain away, which is a big benefit of unit testing in general, right? Is it kind of takes some of the fear out of refactoring and changing things? Well, it takes, yeah. So another way to say that too, is that it takes away the friction. Yeah. Yep. So it's just smoother because you know you have more confidence in it. I mean, how many times have you heard, oh, we don't want to update that library? Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's because you, you don't know what's going to happen. There's just fear. Yeah. I, don't, I don't, we haven't updated that library in three years and now we've waited too long. So it's probably going to be really painful when we do. And we don't want to experience that pain right now. So we're going we're gonna to push that technical debt out. We're going to put it on loan for another six months and maybe we'll revisit this conversation then. Yep. So the the unit tests really do give you confidence. That's that is huge. Yep. And the next section was uh, using code that does not yet exist. I like uh, this. A funny way of saying um, code that you know is coming. Like say you're working with a partner and they're working on something, but they're not really sure what it's going to look like yet because they're still figuring out some business requirements. But you've got a general sense of what you need or how you need to interact with it. So you can write a little class, program to that class or interface. And then once they uh, once they finish their part, you can kind of make those two match up. And theoretically, you shouldn't have to change too much of your code. Well, what I really liked was not even just making it match up, right? So, so you coded to your interface, and they wrote their own implementation. And then in order for you to make your stuff work, you just write your adapter to go in between the two, right? So in other words, Alan doesn't have to be dependent on my crappy implementation. He can just have his interface and then... He doesn't have to worry about when I'm changing mine all the time. Exactly. And, and that's, that's excellent. Your crappy implementation wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> so, but yes, no, I mean, although I will say there are times when you think you, you've got a simple use case, and then once you get that library, it's totally different. And the example I always think of is as PayPal. If you take <laughs> credit cards now and then you want to add PayPal, you think like, 
okay, easy. I'll just, you know, it's probably just another processor, but it's really not because they've got to jump out to that website, come back to yours. Um, there's a couple steps pro- processing that's just different. There's, there's different trigger points than if you're just doing a kind of traditional credit card type thing. And so it's not just uh, something the you can abstract around. The authorizations are completely different. So it yep. is different, but if you think about it, though, from a programmer's perspective, if you're coding to an interface, right, go go authorize the card and then go go get money from the card. Granted, the implementation is night and day difference, but your interface really should still be about the same. The people who are using your your payment interface instrument there, they shouldn't have to worry about that implementation. The poor fools who wrote that adapter are <laughs> going to hate themselves in life. How you doing? <laughs> right? But, but you know what I'm saying, though? Like, it still stands true. Your boundary should be your interface. And if you're yes, coding to but, that... But... Sorry. No, go, go. Sorry, I'm an interrupter. Uh, yeah, I was just saying, um, with PayPal specifically, you know, with a credit card, you take their information and you go and off. PayPal... You send them to a link that goes and collects the information, bounces back to like a redirect page that has some information for you. And so there's a, this back and forth that isn't there. And that happens with OAuth stuff all the time. Oh. Like if you're used to taking, say, username and password for a login, and now you want to bring in something like OAuth, like you're doing Google or something, now you're bouncing them out and you're adding steps and, and you're adding things that need hooks that you don't have yet in just a traditional, simple scenario. And so it's not just a matter of saying, oh, let me pop this provider in. You know, you've got to really re-architect the whole solution for it. Well, I mean, while we're uh, pouncing on PayPal, I'd like an opportunity to jump in. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because when you do capture that auth with PayPal, though, that auth can expire. So if you have if you have a product that's on back order, right, with a credit card, you get like what, uh, like 60 to 90 days, I believe, for the auth. There's, it's a longer duration. There's, I don't remember exactly what it is, but with PayPal though, that auth expires after 30 days. And after that time, wasn't it? It was a short time frame. No, like there, I'm thinking in the case of like options. back orders, okay. the, the auth can expire. And by the time you want to go back and re auth, then because of the nature of PayPal, there might not be money in the account because it's not on credit. Right. Necessarily. Right. It might not be backed by a credit card, so you might go to ship that thing, and oh nope, now you can't, now you can't because you have to go back through and re-auth it, and now you can't uh, recapture or re, you know, auth the the transaction. But let's it's let's a real pain. Let's back up to the heart of this though. So what you said though, Joe, was I I feel is something different, right? So when you're talking about you bounce out and you go to PayPal. Um, like literally you left where you were visually at and you, then you went over to PayPal and you did some stuff over there and now you bounce back to yours. I feel like that's a totally different flow. So, yeah. so with that though, you could say the same thing about like Amazon payments, right? Because you can do the same type thing. So I feel like if that's what you're talking about, that's not just a provider. That's not a payment provider. At that point, you actually have another payment flow that you have to go through. And yeah. and, and so I, I just I wanted to make sure that we were kind of comparing apples to apples because if you're using the PayPal payment authorization gateway similar to a credit card gateway, you can code to an interface. If you're yeah. using a payment gateway type thing, right? If you're using something to where you have to break flow from whatever your page is and then, and then move on, then 
at that point, you've actually got a completely different process. And maybe you code those two interfaces as well. And that's not going to fit with your payment authorized um, type interface. It's a different, it's a different instrument totally, right? So I, I guess my point is there's always going to be differences. And as long as they somewhat fit in the same thing, then you can code it to it. When you're talking about a completely different workflow, though, you can't you can't cram that into the same box, right? Which I yeah. feel like is what Joe was originally trying to to say, right? Like you couldn't like you think you start out with credit card and that all your payment processors are going to look like this and fit like this, so you have this interface that looks a particular way, and then you're like, oh, I think I can fit in an Amazon a pay with Amazon or a PayPal or whatever or a Google Wallet into the same interface, but then. Because of the breakout situations that you're talking about, then it ends up falling apart. And so you can get into a bad situation where you tried to do what you felt was the right thing of having this one common interface, but these other, uh, in this case, payment formats don't really lend themselves well to that. So at what point do you take a step back then? So you, you've started and then you find out that, oh, okay, well, I can use it this way, but maybe they don't want to use it this way or maybe we, would, we don't want to integrate it this way. At what point do you say, okay, I'm not going to try and put it into this interface. I'm going to create this whole nother flow, right? Like, is there is there a great divide there that you know of? Well, I think the idea is that you don't know there's going to be a divide yet. Like, you think it's going to be simple and it's not. And uh, I, I think that um, there's no really way to protect against unknown unknowns, right? Things that right. are totally not, you're not prepared for. But uh, the example that they gave in the book de- dealt with dealing with a very specific transmitter that would have certain frequencies and whatnot. And so that makes a lot of sense to do just kind of like a little mock class so that you can continue working while they kind of fill in those details. And it doesn't really matter what calls you have to make to configure that object. You know, once once they get it done, you can kind of fit fit that in pretty easily and the, and the rough parts fit in. And even with PayPal or something crazy like that, um, I think having that, that kind of mock object or that stub in there while you're working is still a good idea. I mean, you might get you know totally blindsided, but you're probably going to be better off if you um, code to that more generic interface anyway. And it presents an interface where you use or an adapter for to use if you do go the, the Amazon route or some other way. And then you can also, if you do create those adapters, you can create tests on those adapters so that you know that they work as expected whenever you're getting them into your apps. So that, that goes back to that whole, you know, you test at the boundaries and then that way you can feel comfortable when you're, when you're deploying these things or upgrading them in the future. Yeah. I'll never feel comfortable with PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love to use it. Oh, um, and, uh, well, one thing we didn't mention is that uh, if you do that kind of ghost object or adapter, then it also provides a, provides a, a convenient seam for testing. So you can easily um, mock or stub that out because now you're programming to an interface rather than an implementation, which is just great for unit testing. Yep. All right. So that pretty much wraps up this chapter. Right? So clean boundaries is what they should have named this book. Oh, no, it was clean code. <laughs> yep, and uh, code of the boundaries uh, needs clear separation, and uh, we have tests that can define that expectation. We can use wrappers and adapters. Those are the two primary mechanisms they use for kind of protecting ourselves. Um, and it kind of harkens back to something uh, I, l- I like to say 
um, just basically pushing the weird stuff to the edges, or I, I would even say boundaries, like pushing the weird stuff to the boundaries. So if you've got some code that touches even like a database or a third party or a service or a package or a DLL, the, for, the farther you can get that away from your core competency, I think the better off you, you're going to be. Um, sometimes that's not practical or pragmatic, but just as a general rule, I like to push the weird stuff to the edges. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it reminds me of the onion architecture. I don't know if you guys have ever looked into it, but mm-hmm. basically where all your models are down in the middle, you have interfaces that are out from that. And then all your actual implementation where things happen is at the very outside. So if anything needs to change, it's only out there. It doesn't affect any other piece. Like everything can only keep going in towards the center. Nothing can reach out from the center. So all your dependencies are on the edge. So it makes yep. it very easy to decouple those things. <clears throat> I actually started Love putting it. together a project on GitHub for that, and yeah, I don't like most of my projects. I get about ten percent in. <laughs> yeah. Well, at first, where you were going, I thought you were talking about the uh, Onion router, and I was like, "Well, that's definitely <laughs> no, that's a little random." Uh, no. So, yeah, you, who posted the question here? I I put the question there. Um, so we mentioned there were two primary mechanisms that we mentioned um, as dealing with uh, boundaries, and they were wrapping the code to um, basically encapsulate it. And then we talked about adapting. And so I was just curious what you guys thought about when do you wrap and when do you adapt? I think if you're trying to... Like w- what they did with the map object, that made perfect sense for wrapping, right? That that was... I need some of the features of this, but I don't want to expose all the features. I love that. Adapting is more... I think of that almost like the the facade or something like that where, you know, I have this interface I'm programming to, but I need it to pipe through to this other one over here. I don't necessarily want to wrap all their features. I just want to, you know, create these little plugs that will allow this to to pass through to it. I don't know that there's a a clean... I, I can't think of any time when I would choose one over the other necessarily. I guess I don't understand the difference because... um even in like, if you were to look up adapter pattern in Wikipedia, it says also known as wrapper. Yeah. Oh, do they call it that? Really? Yeah. When you when you're so I don't I don't think there's a difference. Is there? Like what? What? So you asked the question. What's your distinction between the two? Yeah. When I, I guess I was anchored by the uh, the examples in the book. So when I was thinking about the wrapper, I was thinking about um, basically hiding the implementation so that I can only expose the necessary bits. But when I think about an adapter, I think about slightly tweaking um, or, or rather um, changing the interface to an object to better suit my needs and then kind of um, adapting my needs to one or more scenarios. Kind of like a power adapter, right? You might have one for US or you might have one for uh, you know international plugs. So the way, my device plugs into one side and I can adapt it to whatever situation I need. So, so the wrapping, like literally, he took in uh, it, in the map situation, right? Like you took a class and you wrapped it around this map class, and you only gave it access to what you needed in there. An adapter is more okay. I have my class over here. There's this third party over here, and I'm going to create this adapter in the middle that I'm going to call that would just kind of proxy stuff back and forth, right? That at least in my mind, that's that's what I was thinking, and it sounds like that's kind of where you were going. So an adapter is kind of like a proxy. 
Yeah, I, I think it's really similar. Just um, kind of different flavors based on the context here. But uh, I think, like Outlaw said, um, there's not a real hard distinction there. Just kind of food for thought. Cool. All right. Do we like this resource? Uh, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people like this resource. It is popular. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard of it before. Maybe. Probably. But we will definitely include a link to this in our show notes. This book called Clean Code. And by the way, my wife asked me, she's like, hey, are you guys going to get in trouble for like going through the book and, and doing this? And... <laughs> I don't know the answer know. to that, but here's what I will tell you. Well, way to bring it up now. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is... <laughs> I feel like we should have had this conversation off air. Yeah, maybe, you know, a few chapters ago. So here's the thing, and this is what I will give you, is like you're getting our thoughts on this, but you're not seeing the code implementations that they have in the book. You're not seeing all the solid examples that they've got. So there, there's a lot that you don't get when you don't have the book. So I feel like if anything, we're it's like we do with most of our podcasts, right? Like we introduce the ideas, we give you our thoughts on it, but you know, hopefully it triggers you to either want to go read the book or look into it or go find other information, right? To, to, to try and fill in those voids here and there. So that's my take on it. I would hope that the authors would see that as well and see that we're adding value. And if nothing else, you know, people that had never heard of the book before will now hear of it. So yeah. Yeah, if not just send us a DMCA to comments at codingblocks.net. <laughs> Oh, man, it went straight to spam. Gosh, that's weird. <laughs> How's that happen? I, I well, messed up the filter. <laughs> the filter looked for DMCA and threw it at the trash. I'm sorry. Uh, no, speaking of possible copyright infringement, uh, oh. just on Hacker News Today, uh, I saw a great link to someone who is adapting clean code specifically for JavaScript. So they kind of take some of the paradigms in the book and just kind of updated and tweaked and dropped some of the things that are less applicable. So, um, for example, uh, use searchable names is a lot more important in JavaScript than it is in Java. So it's highlighted a little bit more. But it's actually a really nice, concise uh, GitHub account that uh, is just really easy to read and it's got great examples of all the stuff we've been talking about. So you should definitely go check it out. But wait a second. Java's already so pretty. JavaScript. It? Hey, JavaScript. It's already so pretty. Like, how are you going to write bad code with it? <laughs> um. <laughs> I can do well. it. Trust me. <laughs> Yeah, notice how there's no uh, topic on wrapping third-party libraries. <laughs> right? yep. uh, uh, I need to require my require. Uh, yeah, trust me, no one can write bad JavaScript like I can write bad JavaScript. <laughs> All right, so it's that time of this episode for the tip of the... Alan's favorite part Every of the other show. week. Yeah. <laughs> it's the tip of the week. <laughs> And uh, it looks like I'm up first, um, which explains the silence there. So I wrote that. <laughs> yeah, so I'm totally stealing this one. Um, so earlier today, I was uh, creeping on MS Dev Show's Twitter account. You know, I like to see what they're doing, um, you know, doing a little spying, whatever, a little recon mission. I think they call and, that stalking. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I... I uh, I have a little crush on MS. I have a podcast crush on MS Dev Show, and uh, I noticed that uh, someone named at Go Fight Nguyen, um, or uh, I'm sorry about the name. <laughs> My pronunciation is terrible. Anyway, they tweeted MS Dev Show uh, with a really cool shortcut in Visual Studio, which I thought looked really good. And then I noticed that this person actually has uh, started a whole blog series dedicated to Visual Studio shortcuts. So I'll definitely be checking it out, and we'll have links in the show notes. But this one is um, pretty interesting. If you select some text in your file and do Control-M, Control-H, 
it removes that text and replaces it with a dot, dot, dot. Ellipse? Yeah, ellipses. Yeah, and so I thought this was really interesting because sometimes when I'm reading a really hairy function, which, you know, shouldn't exist, but it happens all the time, right? A big hairy function. A lot of times I used to, like, put regions around code and just kind of type in some notes as I was going along just to try and figure out what the heck is going on before I start making changes. And so I like that I can do this control MH thing. Just get the stuff I don't care about out of my face while I'm trying to just understand. And so I like that I can do that now without being destructive and re- trying to remember to back everything out and accidentally leaving a space here or there and then that's sneaking into my pull request and outlaw calling me on it. So uh, <laughs> I thought that was a really cool um, shortcut. Control M, Control H. And, and to be fair for those thinking like, well, hey, I think I could already do that if it's like already in say, uh, some, some block scope level, like a for loop or if statement or right. And you're like, but I can already collapse that. But what he's describing is, let's say maybe you have a portion of code that isn't, um, that's in the same scope, but yet there's that portion that you want to collapse, right? So you can collapse just that one portion that you've selected. It doesn't have to be its own scope level. That's, yep. That's really cool. I didn't know about that one. I'll be trying it tomorrow. Although I'm sure, I'm sure Uncle Bob's like, "Oh my God, you have that many lines of code that you have to hide it in order to read the method." I feel like you missed yeah, a oh chapter. Man, Slack has been going nuts all week talking about how many lines are appropriate in a function. It's been amazing. I all think right now, I think we've answered that. The answer is one. I, I think it came to blows at some point. I'm fairly certain. It, it's oh. reignited just tonight, actually. Oh, did and, it really? Uh, yeah, it's it's entertaining and. Uh, I believe it's all in good fun. I hope no one's getting offended, but it's it's been a really fun to read. And been taking it to both extremes. Um, there have been examples like how would you condense this back and forth, and uh, arguments over whether it's uh, actively making the code worse or whatever. It's just been a really uh, good and lively debate, and we've enjoyed watching it. Yeah, we have we have a fantastic community of people, which is a great segue because if you haven't already joined the Coding Block Slack channel, you are truly missing out. This is one of the greatest Slack channels in the world. No lie, you got to join. And we're biased. I mean, we'll freely what? admit we're biased, no. but even if you weren't, like, they're seriously... We were literally... It was actually listed in, one, like, the top podcast, or uh, Slack channels. No, it is the top Slack channel. Um, so, www.codingblocks.com slash Slack. You did it this time. Really? Oh, really? <laughs> it's because you set a bad habit. No, I didn't do it. It wasn't my fault. Dang it. It ain't my Somebody fault. Somebody buy that URL. <laughs> www.codingblocks.net slash slack I was so focused on getting the slash slack part correct that I messed up the URL. You did great on the slack part. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Did you notice? I'll mention that I'm actually actively trying to schedule a Rocket League game for after this podcast recording. Oh, really? In Slack. Oh, you want some? Bring it on. Yeah, computer. (laughs) Oh, man, it's too easy there because he's going to use his little controller. (laughs) 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 All right. So so my tip of the week is this little thing called Power BI. If you haven't heard of it, it's like Microsoft's little visualization type thing where you can bring in data and you can you can visualize it basically 9000 different ways and the part that's amazing to me is you can download their desktop client for free and they also have this thing where you can do so much for free using their platform so if you have some things that you want to visualize and you have data coming from like disparate sources you can suck that data in 
to the desktop client, you can even then massage the data in there. You can reformat the entire data stream that's coming in. You can then relate the data, and you can create graphs and, and visualizations all based off this. It's absolutely killer. So if you've ever had anything, you have a little side project, maybe you want to look at your web logs and, and see how many people are coming, or, 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 or you've got different places where you want to get stats from and you want to be able to see it, it is a killer tool. I've only messed with it for about four or five hours, and I've already created some really cool stuff in there. So I highly recommend going and checking it out. I've got the link there. It's powerbi.microsoft.com. Go check it out. Play with it. And again, it's free. Like It's crazy that it's free because the amount of power this tool has is unreal. Um, and they have ways where you can publish to the web. You can publish to to like mobile platforms you can you can publish to all kinds of places now i don't know what the costs run into when you start doing some of that but you know maybe you don't need to um maybe it's something to look at but uh just but even the free tier though is that is that not uh isn't that priced like based on a certain number of calls no am i no, wrong no no so there's they and it's confusing so part of it is part of azure if you publish it to the web and you can embed it some places yes there is like you get like 30 sessions or x number of sessions a day for free and then after that it starts costing like 10 cents per session and a session is it can time out after a certain period of time i don't remember the exact numbers but that can be it it can get pricey yeah i i found what i was looking for it was, it was based on the on there's a charge based on like the number of rows per hour that okay. you um cuz i know that there were so some other api it, calls that uh azure has that are like that too where it's like oh hey the first you know here's the free tier and you could do like you know i don't know 50,000 calls for free right but that 50,001 call is going to cost you yeah right and some of it's not that expensive but again no, the cool um, part is the desktop app as far as I can tell, it's completely free, and you can do tons of visualizations in there. And if you want to publish it somewhere, you can. I mean, let's keep this in perspective when we talk about signing up. Because if you want to sign up for the Power BI Pro level, it's $10 per user per month. Yeah, it's not expensive. Um, Depends and, on how many users you have. Right. But yeah. yeah, good point. Uh, it's not as expensive as Slack. <laughs> yes. Slack is expensive. Slack is a little cray. They, they cray cray. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, really cool tool. Uh, definitely check it out. Uh, I'm probably going to be doing a video on it here in the near future because I was able to do some pretty neat stuff with some stats. So, uh, yeah, that's it. So my tip of the week is going to fall into the category of outlaws a moron. <laughs> so have you ever <laughs> – Have you? okay, so let's say you do uh, – a git pull merge, you know, in some other branch into yours. And, you know, you have the merge conflicts and you take the time and let's say that you use a tool to do like a KDIF three, for example. So you do a git merge tool and, you know, resolve all your conflicts. Right. And then afterwards you're left with all these dot org files or, or however you would pronounce that spread throughout your directory tree. Right. Mm hmm. Uh, and if you're like me, like I hate those things, right? I forever now have been in the habit of, I will just type in 
like it's it's like secondhand. Like I would just type in find dot name, uh, and then in parentheses splat dot or uh, o r i g uh, minus minus exact rm uh, curly brace curly brace backslash semicolon boom they're gone right. I don't know why. I don't even remember why. But a few weeks ago, I found myself reading the documentation for Find, and realized that there was a dash dash delete option. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, not wow. even a dash. I'm sorry. I think I said dash dash delete. I just mean dash delete. There's a dash delete option. I'm like, are you kidding me? This whole time, I've been typing in exact rim curly brace curly yeah. brace, and I could have just. So yeah, don't Dash be stupid. Delete. Read the documentation. <laughs> so so curious why uh, you don't reset or um, I guess reset wouldn't do it because they're new files. But clean FD deletes too much. Oh, I've never done that. No, you mean like a clean like a get clean FD? Yep. And no, I just I don't know. I'm weird. I I, I don't know. I don't have a good clean answer. Clean FD gets rid of other stuff too, so you have to do like a full rebuild. So oh, uh, no. that's what I usually do, and it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, I, don't I mean, do that. I guess. Yeah, I don't I don't really have a good answer because I do so many builds that I don't really care about getting rid of the the builds but yeah. Uh find dot name or find dot minus name and then in parentheses splat dot o r i g minus delete. Man, I got I got a tip for you cuz that's that's a little too verbose. If no, you're in man. command line no, del man. slash s Come on, Star you do all Ridge. your development on Windows? No, you don't. I do. No, you don't. <laughs> Let me see you do that Dell command on that Mac you're sitting on right now. I'm going to alias that bad boy. That ain't going to work. <laughs> that ain't going to work. <laughs> it, it's so much cleaner. No, nah, man. Nobody got time for that. No, uh, I, like to, I like to keep my commands you know, cross-platform, and at least with a Git bash, then I can do that find on any platform. Yeah, hey, I got but, a dumb question for you, Ella. Um, oh God, here we can go. I, so I'm a big fan of Git alias, right? Like I got a bunch of aliases do common it. tasks. <laughs> well, so is it possible to Git alias something like say Git cleanup, um, or cleanup's probably better? Like you know, Git remove orge and have it actually execute something that's not even Git at all. Just totally. I exact think you're something? wanting a, a Git hook. But wait, why um, wouldn't you just no? create an alias in Bash? Yeah, I could do the bash thing, but I actually want to say like, you know, it, oh. it just makes sense to me to have it in my alias file so I can just say, forget, you know, like okay, clean or something. And it just kind of, you know, maybe I could do get clean and it does the clean FD. It does a couple of different things. I don't, I don't remember. I haven't thought too much about it, but I was just wondering if there was a way to actually kind of shell out through Git. Maybe if you pipe them together. I, I Honestly, I can't say because I don't like it because to me, Git alias is just an opportunity to forget. Like because that's really all I'm telling myself is oh I'm going to forget the real thing and I'm going to have this shortcut for it and now when I go to this brand new system then oh man what was that command again oh yeah let me go and relook at my alias so I would rather just be in the habit of knowing what the real thing is no <laughs> well it looks like you can there's a git config dash dash global and then then you do your alias dot whatever it's going to be so it looks like you totally can. I, because you asked that question, I'm going to paste this into our show notes. Huh. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious because I know I, I alias git commands all the time. So I'll say like, uh, I have one called git ignore 
and I think it was a tip once where uh, it basically does uh, the commands to um, temporarily ignore files, and so it won't see them as changed. So I'll do it for like you know some setting files and some some stuff that I'll mess with. Sometimes I don't want to accidentally check in. Um, but yeah, I have no clue what it's doing underneath anymore. I totally forgot, which is the whole point of aliasing. Like I wanted to forget that weird dash dash slash slash stuff. Yeah, it looks like you can. You can even do things because the one of the things that they're showing here is they've got this. They aliased an unstage, and it's got reset head dash dash, and then down below where they show using it, you can do get unstage file a or get reset head dash dash file. No, a. but I think what he's talking about though. Isn't that he's talking about um, aliasing m- multiple commands chained together? Oh, where you like do this command commands, and and like... do this command and and do that? Oh, command. they're not git commands though. No, it doesn't look like you can do that. Mm. No. Yeah, well, someone let us know if uh, there's something else I should be doing instead. I think that's where like git hooks are going to come in. Interesting. Me. All right. Well, well I'm still going to put the link yeah. there. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know. Like I said, I, I would rather just know the command that way I can go into any system and just know what I need to know rather than oh yeah let me go look at my cheat sheet right coolness alright well that was it we just covered chapter 8 on Klieg code boundaries yep keeping things clean separated so with that be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or more using your favorite podcast app Uh, Be sure to leave us a review. You can visit us at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And while you're up there, you can check out all our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your questions, feedback, and rants to uh, (laughs) codingblocks.slack.com. And uh, follow us on Twitter. I love every time I say that, I get a little chuckle. (laughs) I'm just wait. I was waiting for you to like specifically call out someone else on the Slack channel. Like direct all your comments uh, and rants to James. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wow, way to throw him under the bus. Nah, he wants it. And uh, follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net. And uh, we've got all sorts of other stuff. we got a mailing list. we got Facebook. we got um, we have a Reddit. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on. So you can follow us in the channel of your choice. Totally. Till next time. Yep. Peace. <laughs> Ignore warnings. I just got it. <laughs> what? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. <laughs>